My guest this episode is passionate about fighting poverty, and you can hear that in this interview. He grew up in a working poor family in Montreal, but it was hearing former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker speak to his high school, telling them to figure out where you can help that motivated him to enter politics. The Honourable Hugh Siegel joins me to talk about a guaranteed basic income for Canada. Hugh believes that no Canadian should be living beneath the poverty line. He sees poverty as a root problem rather than a symptom of other problems, and he believes it's a problem we can fix. Hugh talks about the lessons he hopes we learn from this pandemic and why now might be the time to introduce a basic income. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest for this episode is the Honourable Hugh Siegel. Hugh has an unparalleled background and is well known as a Canadian political strategist, author, commentator, academic, and former senator. Currently, he is a Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy at Queen's and Senior Advisor at Aird and Bearless LLP. Hugh has long been an advocate for those living in poverty. In this episode, he'll share his passion for a basic income for Canadians, an idea that seems to be gaining traction during the pandemic. Hugh, welcome to Bright Future. Great pleasure to be here. Can you level set around what the core elements of a universal basic income are? Yes, by, by gladly. Let me perhaps start by saying what it isn't. Andrew Yang, who had quite a compelling campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination, talked about a basic income, which was something he referred to as the freedom dividend, where everybody would get $1,000 a month, whether they needed it or not. And then the tax system would tax back from people who were better off most of it, and those who weren't better off would keep most of it. And he made the case that that was important to help people in the precarious place, in a workplace where people work freelancers and on gigs and in a whole bunch of other things. And it was important to allow the American economy to make progress in those areas without hurting individuals because there aren't long-term steady jobs. That's not my proposal, and that's not the proposal that's been advanced in Canada generically. The proposal in Canada is essentially to take something very simple, the guaranteed income supplement, which we have for seniors, where everybody above the age of 65 is guaranteed that their income every month will not be, from all sources, will not be less than $1,200. And if for some reason, let's say they only have 400 a month, then the government will top them up with the other 800. And if they have 900 a month, then they'll get the 300 to make sure everybody is at least at that $1,200 level and a slightly higher number for a, couple, for a couple, for example. So the idea behind basic income top up is very simply to apply the same principle to the folks between the ages of 18 and 64 of working age for whom there really is nothing other than welfare. If you fall beneath the poverty line, there's provincial welfare programs. They are classically very minimalist in terms of how much they give you. They give you about half the poverty line in any Canadian province. That would mean that in Ontario, a single recipient wouldn't get more than about 600 bucks a month. And if you earn more than a couple hundred bucks extra a month, it gets clawed back dollar for dollar which is an effective tax rate of 100% on your earned income. And the top up would work very simply. People would file their taxes. You have to state what your income is, honestly, on your taxes. It's a statutory responsibility. You fell beneath a certain line, you'd be automatically topped up. 
And that would ensure that no Canadian who fell beneath the poverty line through no fault of their own, all the jobs evaporated one day because the government ordered a shutdown based on public health advice, for example, they would know that there'd be a net that would protect them until such time as the economy restructured and they could find work in a way that was constructive. That would be seamless in the sense that it wouldn't be a separate department of government or a whole new bunch of civil servants to manage it. It'd be run by CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, just as the CRA has successfully run the HST low-income tax credit for decades automatically, just as they did so well in the management of the CERB during the recent outset of the pandemic we're living through now. That's basically the proposal. And if you think of the numbers, there are now about 8.1 million Canadians who are receiving the CERB at about 2,000 a month. That's a large amount of money, and it clearly can't go on forever. There has to be some transition to a sustainable normal. If we brought in a basic income guarantee for people beneath the poverty line, so it's for people in need, it's not for everybody, it's for people who are actually in serious financial need, we have about 9% of our population who live beneath the poverty line. Now, that's different by province. Some provinces are more or less. The numbers in the Atlantic region are tougher than they might be, for example, in southwestern Ontario. It's tougher in rural Canada, and it's very tough amongst our First Nations brothers and sisters who have rates underneath the poverty line of 30 to 40%, depending on the community, which are third world rates. But if we were able to engage at that level, we would have a system which protected people, which did not discourage work, because welfare actively does, and moreover, would ensure that there is a basic guarantee that everybody can have. I argue often we have a three-legged stool on which we try to build our ethos as a caring and productive society. One of the legs is universal health insurance, which is very important, as we have discovered in the last little while. The other leg is free primary and secondary education for everybody. And the third leg is particular support for senior citizens and for low and middle income families with children through the child benefit, which has been a tremendous success to the government's credit. But the one group of people for whom there is no protection are people between the ages of 18 and 64 who find themselves, for whatever circumstance, underneath the poverty line. And all they have to turn to is provincial welfare programs. Those welfare programs now cost us $20 billion a year across the provinces in Canada. And they are, by definition, bureaucratic. They involve caseworkers. They involve case management. They involve proving to your caseworker that you're still poor and that you're living the life that the caseworker thinks you should be living. So it's very bureaucratic. And it doesn't lift anybody out of poverty. In fact, it traps people in poverty simply because it discourages work. And what you want is to have a program that protects people, but encourages them to work so they build up their own connection to the workforce, begin to earn more money, and stop requiring that measure of support. That's essentially what our proposal has been. This idea is very topical now, but you've been at this for decades. Why have you dedicated so much time to this idea if it seems, on one hand, very reasonable, but also quite a monumental change to introduce in the country. I've been at this so long I had hair when I started. 
so that you know, every time I look in the mirror, I realize how long I've been at this. Look, it helps to grow up in a working poor home, which I did. I had two wonderful, loving parents, but my dad was unemployed for long periods of time and ended up being a cab driver. And my mom, who had been a stay-at-home mom by choice, had to go out. I think she her first job for a few years was the all-night cashier at the medical arts pharmacy in Montreal to generate a little bit of money for the household. I know what that's like, and there were many families in Montreal that were in far worse shape than us. I know what it's like to see your parents after Sunday night dinner have a pile of bills they have to deal with. I wasn't particularly unhappy, but I understood how it produced tension and difficulty in normal family dynamics. When in school, I was about 12, it was 1962, during the federal election, Prime Minister Diefenbaker came to our school. He made a wonderful speech about the Bill of Rights, which his government had passed, which is the predecessor of the Charter of Rights and Freedom. And he talked about a country, and I remember the term, where there's space for everybody at the family table. Black or white, farmer, fisherman, construction worker, office worker, business person, doctor, lawyer, here for 20 generations, new immigrant, we're all welcome at the family table. That's the core idea of Canada. And he looked at the kids, which I was one of about, I would say, 400, and he said, but I want your help to build that kind of Canada. I don't care what your politics are or how your parents may or may not vote, but I want you to figure out how you can help to do that. It had a huge impact on me. And so that's when I decided that maybe if you want to do something about a situation which you know is bad for literally thousands of people, maybe thinking about doing it through politics is one way to engage. And that led on to a whole bunch of other involvements. And through every stage of that, I've continued to advance this cause as best I can. There are so many people in Canada today that have that challenge of the bills millions of people who are relying on programs that they weren't before. And we've seen the federal government implement a number of new programs that CERB is one that you've talked about. This program was effectively developed and introduced overnight, as far as government is concerned. And it's a whole other approach to an employment insurance or some kind of support for people who are out of work. Provincial and territorial governments have also been innovating. We heard from Ranch Palais about Yukon's approach to cover 100% of fixed cost for sick leave for gig economy and entrepreneurs. Do any of these programs from your assessment look like or draw from the principles of a basic income? I would say they are branches coming off the same roots. The root that is important here is the following notion, which some people may think is radically unacceptable and some others may think makes good sense. The notion is no Canadian should be living underneath the poverty line. And the problem with the way in which we deal with that now is we are not really prepared to top people up simply because they don't have enough money. We want to know why they're poor. Often you'll hear folks on the far left who don't like this idea say, well, you know, poverty is very complex. There are many things that contribute to poverty. And I argue that people who claim it's too complex to fix are people who don't really want to fix the problem. Because in the end, poverty is really very simple. Not 
having enough money to get by. I don't view poverty as something which is caused by a bunch of other things. I view poverty as something which causes a bunch of other things. And we may not be able to fix all those other things, but we do have the capacity to fix poverty. In my view, the best and most productive investment a mixed market economy could make in dealing with all the negative pathologies that come from poverty, because while you said earlier, a lot of people are dealing with the pressures of facing paying their bills and all the rest. I wish it was that simple. A lot of people in poverty have lousy health because they're in poverty, because of where they live, because of their exposure to food insecurity right across the country. A lot of people in poverty, their kids have less constructive educational outcomes. A lot of people in poverty, when they are involved with the police, it tends not to be that constructive a relationship on occasion. So these are things which cost all of us as taxpayers a tremendous amount of money every year. And the notion is, where can we invest to reduce all those costs? Give me an example. When there was a test done uh, by the federal government and by the government of Manitoba in the mid-1970s, the Shire was the premier of Manitoba, NDP, and Mr. Trudeau, father of our present prime minister, was the Canadian prime minister. It was called the Mincom Test. It took place in Dauphin, Manitoba. It ran for three years. And it basically provided a, a guarantee that if your income fell beneath a certain level, for whatever reason, you'd be topped up. It wasn't judgmental as to why your income fell. It wasn't judgmental about the kind of life you were living. It merely said, please know, if you're part of this pilot project, you will be protected should your income fall. And they signed up as volunteers. And we learned several things from that. The amount of people who showed up to work every day didn't diminish at all. Because Dawson, pretty proud agricultural community, people believed in work, they believed in engaging, but they were glad to have this little protection in the event there was a crop failure or God knows what else. The other thing we found was that people were uh, resolutely honest in what they said about their income. Nobody tried to move the barriers around in some way that was inappropriate. And there was only two groups who showed up a little less in the workplace during the three-year process. One were mothers of new infants. Don't forget, this is before Matley, they even existed, right? So they could decide if they wanted to, to stay home a little longer with their new baby because they could afford to because they're being topped up by the basic income. And the other group that didn't show up to work quite as much were what Statstan refers to as unattached young males, which means teenagers. And that was because their parents, who, when they got into financial difficulties, would send the kids out of school and to work, having them drop out early, said, no, 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 you better finish high school. We can manage with this other thing. And we know now that the benefit, both in terms of child rearing and in terms of economic productivity for the young man who finished high school back in the 70s, was very substantial, very important. So that would have allowed people, when they had steady work, to pay back a lot of the uh, taxes that would have gone to otherwise finance the program. The other most important thing that I think really is important for Canada, particularly because of our demographics, is that there was a reduction during the period of the Dawson test in the use of Manitoba health insurance in the affected areas by over 8%. And there was a reduction in uh, car accidents 
in the areas affected by the top. All the things that are produced by stress and strain were reduced in terms of impact and cost. And you know, I live, I'm, I'm speaking to you today from Kingston. I live in Kingston. And we have six prisons within 50 miles of downtown Kingston. And even though the rate of Canadians living under the poverty line is about 9%, somehow 85% of the guests of Her Majesty in those prisons, federal and provincial, come from that 10%. So imagine what we could be doing if we reduced the amount of people who lived in poverty to begin with, so as to reduce some of those other costs that are generated. If you go to the, uh, not during the pandemic, but generally speaking, you go to the trauma or emergency ward of a major downtown hospital, the vast majority of people sitting there are lower income people. They don't have a doctor. They have nowhere else to go. They may have a flare up in some chronic illness that they're trying to manage. They get triaged and uh, if they need a prescription or some other help, our medical system deals with it. But often, nurses and doctors conclude that what those people really need before they leave is a hot bowl of soup and a sandwich. And the cost to all of us of that hot bowl of soup and a sandwich is $1,007. $1,000 for the triage, the overheads, the people who are deployed to deal with folks in the trauma ward, and 7 bucks for the bowl of soup and the sandwich. Think about where we could achieve systemic savings in a meaningful way if we invested at the front end to keep the worst pathologies of poverty from affecting people and their own lives. Where does the CERB fit into that story? There are two parts of it which I think are very impressive. First of all, I say this just as one other taxpayer, I think the folks in finance and in the government and the Privy Council office who put the thing together so quickly deserve immense credit. And I say this without any partisan consideration at all for two reasons. They concluded very quickly what many of us have known for a long time. EI, employment insurance, doesn't really cover a lot of unemployed people in Canada. 40% of those who are unemployed aren't eligible for EI for a whole bunch of reasons. And it's slow moving. And it has its own bureaucracy and its own criteria that have to be proven, so to speak, either by algorithm or by individual analysis. Provincial welfare programs are worse. So those folks in finance and the ministers concluded that neither one of those programs was agile enough to produce immediate liquidity in the hands of working Canadians who found they had no job one day through no fault of their own. And they put together a program that met that, what I'm sure it will be seen to have been not perfect when the Auditor General reports in two years. There is a reason that if you watched American TV, you saw folks in cars lined up for miles at drive-by food banks. And you didn't see that in Canada because our folks who are out of work had a basic amount every month that they could buy their own groceries with, make their own choices with, and maintain some sense of self-respect and dignity. So I think the CERB reflects the need to be agile. And let's be clear, the Bank of Canada made a series of decisions to its credit that it would use liquidity to fight the economic collapse, namely large amounts of money to keep markets stable, etc. And they ended up buying provincial bonds, so the provinces would have liquidity, and they did some corporate easing, buying corporate bonds to make sure there was liquidity in the marketplace. It was the absolute right thing to do, but the notion that as a country, 
we can do that for big institutions and for big corporations. And I'm not against that. I think it was the right thing to do. But we don't have a way to do it for average folks who have their own liquidity crisis through no fault of their own. I think that's why the CERB is such a magnificent statement about the underlying values of what we're trying to build here as a mixed market economy. And the most important part was the agility of CRA. I mean, I know of people here in Kingston and elsewhere in the country who, if they took the instructions that were given based on when their birthday was and they filed online on Monday, the money was in their bank account by Wednesday. There is no federal or provincial government program that can do that, ever. And I think the new world in which we are all living requires that kind of acuity and nimbleness on the part of programs that are supposed to help you when it's necessary and do so in a way that is reasonably effective. So I think that's the good news. And what that says to us is that if we dealt with income insecurity nationwide based on that CRA relationship, which after all is tied to our taxes and it's tied to a statutory declaration about your income, so there's no way around that, that is a much more efficient and modern way to deal with the back and forth, ups and downs in the marketplace. People who are in the gig economy for a couple of months and then they have nothing for a couple more months. People in the arts and culture who, by definition, don't necessarily have full-time jobs as opera singers or painters or poets or writers. They go from event to event and they have gaps where there's no income at all. And nothing would be more encouraging, in my view, to that huge part of our creative strength as a country than to have this kind of backstop that operate in that fashion. And the other important thing is some of the criticism of the basic income is to say, well, you know, you file your taxes once a year, and that's when you indicate what your income is, but that could change. You have to wait a whole year before Revenue Canada knows, well, we now know that's not necessary. The tax rules now are very clear. If I was making $60,000 somewhere and I got a new job that paid me $80,000, my employer and I would have to inform Revenue Canada so they take off more tax every week or every month to make sure the percentage is correct. And that also works the other way. If I had a job at page 60 and I lost it and I was only earning 20, I would go to Revenue Canada and say, this is my new income and they would tax me accordingly. Revenue Canada has now shown to the great credit of the public servants who work there that they can do this and they can do it well and they can do it efficiently. So that says that a basic income could be efficient, effective, productive, and timely, and we would have the core protection of accuracy that all of us are supposed to respect when we file anything with Revenue Canada. My economist colleagues and folks at finance would question the connection I've made from CERB to universal basic income. There are significant differences between the two, but there are some interesting connections that you've shared. A basic income in Canada is also not a theoretical idea. You yourself were involved in designing a pilot project in three Ontario communities, Hamilton, Brant, Lindsay, near Peterborough, and Thunder Bay. Although that pilot project ended early, it was a real-life Canadian example of what a universal basic income is and how it could be implemented. I wonder if there are any lessons from that pilot and the research associated with it that you might want to share 
to help inform the discussions going forward. The purpose of the pilot when it, when I was commissioned to do it, which I was delighted to do on a pro bono basis, was to find out once and for all with hard data, is a basic income more efficient and more productive than the old welfare system? So we had 4,000 registrants, 2,000 were gonna be on the basic income plan, and the others would stay on welfare, and we would measure the outcomes for both groups going forward, one being the control group. And that would tell us what happened in terms of the health care and the health status of both groups over the three years. What happened in terms of the educational attainment, both groups and their families over the three years. What happened in terms of housing? What happened in terms of their engagement with the community? What happened in terms of their own ability to better their own lives? And sadly, because it was shut down after a year, by the incoming Ford administration. We never got all that data, but there is some data that was done by the Department of Economics at McMaster University of recipients in the Hamilton Brant area, which was one of the designated regions. Their results were really quite fantastic in terms, and by the way, this is all peer reviewed. This is not sort of a one-off. These are long serving labor economists who did it in a methodologically precise way. We found that recipients did not diminish their commitment to the workforce. Because remember this, when my friends on the far right say, as they do, you know, if you pay people who aren't working, why would they ever want to work? Right? That's a classic criticism from the right. My response is, so how come 70% of the Canadians living beneath the poverty line in Canada have jobs? How come some of them have more than one job, because the one job they do have doesn't pay them enough to get by. And by the way, some of those people would be represented by those poor souls who are working at very little in the uh, long-term care homes across Canada and who weren't earning enough in any one place to get benefits or sick leave. So they had to have two or three jobs in different places to cobble together enough for them and their families, and they became innocent and unwitting vectors for the infection from place to place. So there's a huge price that you pay when you let people, the working poor and others who are poor, not have any chance for a leg up. That pilot project would have given us those results. We found, for example, that a lot of people who had a working poor kind of job got the top up and they used it to take more education, take night courses college and university because they understood that the more education you have, the more your possibilities are better for finding satisfying and better paying work. There were some people who used it to set up small entrepreneurial businesses. This was particularly true in places like Lindsay, where they could live off the basic and then have the ability to open up a little artisanal proposition that generated more income for their family so they could build a future for themselves. Some people moved with children from a very tiny little apartment where everybody was on top of everybody to a slightly bigger place because they had that guarantee of income for three years. Their mental health improved. Their actual physical, physiological health improved. I remember there was one person in the study who, she was a woman in her 50s. And when asked what she did with the first monthly grant, bought her first new winter coat in her entire life. The notion that 
and folks get the money and they sit on the couch and they eat bonbons and they watch soap operas is a right-wing silliness to which there's not one bit of factual data to back it up. And that's what we learned from just the people who were part of the Hamilton Grant area of the study. And sadly, we never got to do the independent review of what happened in Thunder Bay and what happened in Peterborough. Listening to you, it's easy to think this is a great idea. You've addressed some of those standard criticisms. What do you think is the most important criticism that is not easy to address as it relates to introducing this kind of a program? Let me just talk about where the criticism comes from, because this may be helpful. There are three groups who are opposed. Generally speaking, most folks who work in departments of finance, federally and provincially and around the world, see their job not only as serving the public interest, which they do, and I think they do it with great integrity, but they also see part of their job is preserving the spending discretion of the Minister of Finance and of the government of which he or she is part. So anytime you have a statutory program, like for example, OHIP in Ontario, right? Nobody knows how much OHIP is going to cost every day because it depends on how many people show up at the doctor's office or in the hospital with their OHIP card. So they don't like programs like that because that can produce numbers which diminish the freedom they have to design programs or for their minister to use his spending discretion or her spending discretion for some new initiative, cutting a ribbon, all those good things. And they are pretty well unified across the Western world because the notion of another statutory program that will generate a fixed amount of money based on demographics every year is something that many finance officials absolutely abhor. And to be fair, when the Minister of Finance has been asked in the House and in the Senate about whether he's prepared to you know, look at the CERB and consider a transition to something like a basic income, he's been very clear. He said, look, I'm not here to deal with long-term issues. Our mission is the emergency, and these are the programs for the emergency. And I can understand why he would say that. It's a completely rational thing for a minister of finance to say. So that's one group. The other group who's opposed are the people on the far right who have an ideological problem. They believe that the Protestant work ethic means that you don't really help people who aren't working. My view is the Protestant work ethic generates, amongst a whole bunch of other ethics, and the kind of economic capacity to help people who are in trouble. And it's the right thing to do for that kind of reason. An interesting area of opposition is also from the far left. And the far left doesn't like the program for two reasons, one of which is substantial and one of which is ephemeral. The ephemeral one is they don't like it because Milton Friedman thought it was a good idea. The famous University of Chicago, you know, pretty right-wing economist. Milton Friedman used to say, look, if you made the American government responsible for the Sahara Desert, there'd be a sand shortage in three years. We don't need bureaucrats deciding how poor people should spend the money. We should just give the money to poor people. And they will not set up tax accounts in the Cayman. And they will not buy condos in Florida. They'll use the money for rent, food, housing, clothing, transport. And that'll get right back into the economy, more efficient to give them the money than to have a huge bureaucratic superstructure deciding how they have to live their lives. And the left doesn't like this for that. The other thing that the far left doesn't like is they really do believe that you're far better off to have thoughtful and caring public servants and politicians design programs for the poor. 
housing subsidies, food subsidies, clothing subsidies, and a whole bunch of other programs, and the poor will accommodate themselves to those programs because that's all there is. So that's my definition of colonialism. What I say to my friends on the far left is, the federal government has designed programs for our First Nations, healthcare, education, clean water. How's that working? How's that going? Is that working good? Will we not be better off if every member of a First Nation, like any other resident of Canada, had a basic amount of income every month they could count on for the purposes of their family, for the purposes of clean water, for the purposes of where they live? So the far left doesn't like that, so they're part of the circumstance. I would say the one criticism, and I give my friends at the Fraser Institute credit for this, they did a paper about two years ago where they said the idea itself had merit. There were substantial benefits that could accrue therefrom, but because it needs federal-provincial agreement, it will never happen. So let's not waste our time on it. If you think about federal-provincial relations in Canada, historically, that is not a criticism without substance. My response to that is, well, that's only if the federal government chooses to go in that way for the purpose of achieving this. If the federal government were to announce as part of its transition or part of a recovery budget, and by the way, Governor Polos of the bank, Bank of Canada, in one of his last speeches said a CERB-like reform of income security would do a lot to energize the recovery. And last I checked, Governor Polos is not a member of some left-wing extremist party. Pretty thoughtful banker, business person, and someone who did a great job as governor of the bank. The challenge, of course, is for the federal government not to get caught up in that particular problem and simply announce that we are going to be establishing a basic income top-up for all Canadians beneath the poverty line. And that's about 3 million people. And the number is going to be probably something like about between 14 and 1600 a month, somewhere in that range, with about 2400 for a couple. We don't need any agreement from the provinces. We're going to spend the money federally. But by virtue of doing that, all the recipients of welfare across Canada would no longer be eligible for welfare because their income would be too high. And just so we're clear, welfare programs across Canada pay people 50% of the poverty rate. This would be a number that was better than that and therefore attractive to folks. And that would liberate $20 billion that the provinces now spend on welfare for them to reinvest in health, for them to reinvest in restructuring long-term care so it's safer. And the federal government would be facilitating that, but each province would be free to decide what it does. Some provinces may want to leave some welfare in place and some provinces may not. They want to spend the money somewhere else because the feds are doing it. And that's what happened with the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. The guaranteed income supplement really began in its modern form in the 1970s when a minority progressive conservative government in Ontario, driven by the NDP and the Liberals to their credit, having discovered that 35% of senior citizens were mostly women back then because the men didn't live that long, were living in poverty, beneath the poverty line, brought in the Guaranteed Annual Income Supplement, GAINS it was called, and it was automatic. You filed your taxes, you got topped up. And that reduced the rate of poverty among seniors, who are mostly women, who were actually buying cat food and dog food to have some protein in their, in their diet, reduced the rate from 35% to 5% in three years. 
We know how to do this. This is not rocket science. And the feds have a tremendous opportunity to do this now. Think of the kind of legacy. This would rival what Tommy Douglas did on universal health insurance to his credit, and which people like Mr. Diefenbaker and Mr. Pearson helped put in place one way or the other, Mr. Pearson mostly. It would deal with the missing leg on the stool, which is folks between 18 and 64 who fall into poverty. My view is that that's the way you deal with that by that criticism around how complex negotiations are by not negotiating, by saying it's a federal decision. Every resident of Canada, lawful resident of Canada is eligible for it if they fall beneath the poverty line. We know the numbers are at 9% and to the credit of the present government, it's come down to 9% from 11% because of things like the child benefit which is very much a universal style program that goes to all families in a particular economic subgroup who have children. So we're building on strength here and it's not complex to set it up. It wasn't complex to do CERB for 8.1 million people literally overnight, putting a program in place for 3 to 3.5 million people should not be all that difficult. Can we afford it? I believe we can. Um, the Parliamentary Budget Office was asked by Pierre Poliev, who was the Tory finance critic at the time, I think he may still be, to take the pilot project as I had designed it and to cost that out. If that were to be put in place across Canada, what would it cost? His argument was people talk about the benefits, but nobody talks about the cost, which is a completely legitimate thing for a finance critic to worry about. The costing came back. Essentially, the PBO said, the amount of money you'd have to spend would be somewhere around $60 billion nationally, but that's before replacing those federal programs this would take the place of. That would get your number down to $40 billion. Well, then if you count the $20 billion that the provinces are spending on welfare, that gets you down to $20 billion. And I always say that while there's provincial governments and federal governments and provincial budgets and federal budgets, there's only one taxpayer. We all pay our municipal tax, our provincial tax, and our federal tax. So this would probably end up costing us, before you assess the benefits to healthcare and education and literacy of all the um, pathologies of poverty being swept away largely, would cost us $20 billion, new money. We know now from the amount of money that's been spent in a short period of time for good and substantial purpose, but that's a number we can affect. It's about 10% of the gross fiscal package that the federal government spends, not counting crown corporations and all the other liabilities which exist off the balance sheet. The notion that we could spend less than 10% of our total budget to get rid of poverty, to reduce the pathologies of poverty, to build a springboard for folks who are in the gig and freelance community and in the arts, and for folks who are working poor, so they have some choices in life. Because if you think about what poverty really does, yes, it makes your life difficult because there's not enough money, but it also steals time. Parents who are in deep financial difficulty because of poverty, they're racing around to figure out how they're going to pay the rent, how they're going to get food in the fridge to put lunch in the bucket. In Kingston, small community, not the wealthiest in Canada, but by far not the poorest, we have 3,000 kids who go to breakfast programs in our schools because they're not a chance they're going to get breakfast at home. And we know from our educators that a student who arrives without 
some nutrition in the morning is not going to learn as well, is not going to concentrate as well, all of which have long-term outcomes. So yes, I think we can afford it. In fact, I would take the position that we can't afford what we'll be doing to our society if we don't do it. Because then we would be saying, we're okay with a permanent underclass. And by the way, just in terms of the present recognition around the world of some of the larger problems we've had around issues of race and discrimination, many of the people who live in that economic underclass are racialized people. And by the way, we have seen that in the United States and elsewhere, many of the people who are worst hit by the coronavirus are people who live in the poorer communities. So there is a cost to not doing this, which can be very substantive, and it is way worse than the cost of doing it responsibly and for the federal government to show some leadership on this. And I think they would have support from at least three of the political parties in the House of Commons, which for a minority government is not a bad place to start. You've been around politics at every jurisdictional level, and you've been involved in a number of efforts to change the government's response and to introduce new policies and introduce new programs. From that history and that experience, what do you want to see as we emerge from the pandemic and we start to reflect on what happened in this extraordinary time and what the lessons are that we might want to apply to our society as we get back to the new normal? I think going through a thoughtful, transparent lessons learned process is very important. We have lessons to learn on public health. We have lessons to learn on um, on supply chains in terms of getting the basic things we need to respond to these kinds of health challenges. We have lessons learned in terms of how we deal with the people who are most at risk and how we can diminish that risk before the next event of this kind happens. We have lessons to learn about how governments work well together, I think, to the credit of all of the provincial government, the federal government. There's very little of the kind of partisan sniping which we normally expect on the day-to-day. One of the lessons we have to learn is that the nature of the society we want to build through the coming recovery is not going back to where it was before this started. Because going back to normal it implies that a whole bunch of people who had no prospects in the normal, who had no opportunity in the normal, who were prevented from everything from good health to good education because of their economic circumstance, that's not what we want to go back to. We want to go to a recovery which is allowing everybody a chance to participate in the economic mainstream. What do we do about that now? Well, education is one of the things we do. Universal health insurance is another thing we do to encourage people to be well, to be able to participate in the economic mainstream. We regulate certain areas of the marketplace so there's some basic fairness. We govern how our banks operate through the bank. There's a whole bunch of things we do to do that. And I think part of what shaping a new recovery has to address is how we deal with the soft underbelly of our society, the folks who are living beneath the poverty line, And how do we bring them around the family table? Because this family table belongs to them as much as it belongs to all of us. Are you optimistic that we're going to learn those lessons and that this idea that you've worked so tirelessly on will move forward? Well, let me say there are thousands of people who have been in support of this idea around the world for a long time. I'm just one of, of the many. I don't think making this sort of change should be easy. I think it is complex. 
It can't happen overnight. But we've been at it now for a long time. There's no lack of understanding of what this is. I think there is maybe a lack of political will because doing something new has risks. And I think what we need to look at now is what I would call the balance of risk. There are risks in doing something new, always. But there are also risks in inertia. Because having gone through what we all went through together in the pandemic, and the folks who saw how their lives were worse than others, because they couldn't work from home, they're going to wonder, well, we've been all through this. People are out celebrating us as essential workers in pharmacies and grocery stores and other places. And we're not going to actually do anything about it. I think that is a much more substantive risk to the unity of the country and to the orderly marketplace that we need for folks to do well, to improve their circumstance, to protect their families, and for people to be involved in good business activity, which generates benefits for everyone. Hugh, your passion for this is infectious. And thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us and reflect on the current realities and some of those opportunities. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.